Well, good morning again. Please turn with me in your copy of Scripture to 1 John chapter 3. We'll concern ourselves primarily this morning with verses 19 through 24 as we close out the end of the chapter. John writes, By this we shall know that we are of the truth and reassure our heart before him. For whenever our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart, and he knows everything. Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence before God. And whatever we ask, we receive from him because we keep his commandments and do what pleases him. And this is his commandment that we believe in the name of His Son, Jesus Christ, and love one another just as He commanded. Whoever keeps His commandments abides in God and God in Him. And by this we know that He abides in us by the Spirit whom He has given us. A rich and a couple of places tricky passage... With the main point, a little longer than I typically try to make them. The main point is that our confidence before God lies in His unsurpassed love and knowledge, leading to our pursuit of the truth. Understood by John, this thick concept of truth is something that you can believe and do. Our confidence before God lies in His unsurpassed love and knowledge, leading to our pursuit of of the truth. John is going to close out the major theme of this chapter, love, and then begin to transition into one of the main themes of the next chapter with the introduction of the Spirit specifically and by name in verse 24. But he tells us, by this shall we know. Of course, this is the name of the sermon series because This crops up so often in John. By this shall we know. John's intent is to give his audience some practical indicators that someone is of God and walking in the light as opposed to someone who is walking, who is of the world, excuse me, merely claiming to walk in the light. Like these folks who have gone out from them, 1 John 2.19. And in this case, he says, we know, and it seems that the second part of the clause here is the effect of knowing. By this we know love, I'm sorry, by this, wrong section, by this we shall know that we are of the truth, 19, and reassure our heart before him. In other words, people differ in how they understand uh, the second part of the verse, but it, it seems best to understand it as by this we will know something and this will have a kind of effect. It will reassure, or even more literally from the original language, persuade our heart before God persuade our heart before God. For whenever our heart condemns us, John writes, God is greater than our heart, and He knows everything. He's greater than our heart, and He knows everything. Now, in every case of this phrase, by this we know, or by this we shall know, and kind of these related phrases, we are primarily directed forward in the passage to what's next. Okay, that's why it's set off by a semicolon. By this we shall know, and then whatever it is. 
right? It always takes, we're always looking after the by this phrase instead of looking primarily backwards. However, every time we are pointed forward to after this phrase, it is in a way that is connected in somehow and advances what came before it. And that makes sense, right? Because otherwise, it would just, every time we saw this phrase, it would just be kind of a, a digression or it would be something that was unrelated to what came before it. And so while we are looking, when we say by this, we shall know, we are, okay, we're waiting for him to tell us, but at the same time, we're waiting for him to tell us in a way that advances what he has already said. And this is very important, which is why I was not, I'm not wasting breath just mentioning that point. Why do you think, why is that important? Uh, why is that important, you ask? Because these couple of verses, these particularly these two, um, two or three have been subject to quite a bit of debate. What exactly they mean. These are great examples of verses that everyone is perfectly fine saying, but when you ask exactly what it means, it's not as clear. Sounds good. Quotable in like 15 different contexts potentially, but what exactly does it mean? And I'm suggesting that if we fail to read it as in some sense advancing what's come before it, this passage just turns into a mystery. And so it turns into a mystery that sounds great and could show up on everywhere from a bumper sticker to a tattoo, but it becomes mysterious. For example, if we, if we read this as some digression, what, in what sense does our heart condemn us? Condemn me how? What does that mean exactly? My heart condemns me in John's language. Does that have implications for whether or not I'm walking in the light? Can a can person who, with a, a heart who condemns them be in the light? What exactly does it mean that God is greater? I mean, he could be described as greater in any number of, of ways. What's it talking about here? God knows everything. Okay, fair enough. Is this just a statement, though, of his omniscience? If so, how is that supposed to be a comfort? Here's this great comfort. God knows all of your sin even more than you. Be comforted. We have to have some kind of context to understand what's going on here. And so I would suggest that we understand it as in some way to be advancing what John was just discussing in verses 17 and 18. So back up with me in the text. Actually, let's just go back to 16, as a matter of fact. By this we know love, this is the conclusion of our time together uh, last week, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us love and uh, not in uh, let us love not in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. John, and I hinted at this in my application last week. John is very aware of how challenging meeting the needs of the brothers and sisters can be in the run of life. Of course, sometimes it's very easy to identify who the brothers and sisters are and identify what the needs are. Sometimes it is super, super easy, and you can ask the question, well, what counts as needs, or who are the brothers and sisters, like the, like, like the lawyer who asked Jesus, who is my neighbor, in an effort to justify himself. Okay, justify himself and continuing in his own disobedience and lacking uh, love for his neighbor. But there is another posture where you can ask the question, and it's someone who wants to follow Jesus, who wants to obey the commands, who wants to do this, and is just genuinely struggling to know 
What that looks like in particular concrete situations. Is this loving or is this enabling? Is giving someone money for a health-related surgery not covered by insurance a need? Is this person actually a brother or sister in Christ? Did I have mixed motives when I clothed them so such that it didn't count as faithfulness? I mean, it saved me a trip to goodwill after all. Does that mean that it really actually wasn't you know, loving from a pure heart? Should I reply to anonymous calls for money if they're fueled by the language of need? Sometimes it is very, very clear how to meet needs and who the brothers and sisters are. And sometimes everyone can agree at the level of principle, but it gets challenging at the level of application. And I'm suggesting that this is the most fruitful and likely context to understand what we get in these couple of verses. John is clearly entertaining a situation where we need some reassurance. Why? Why would we need any reassurance? Presumably because of what we just discussed and what he just discussed in the last couple of verses. What's occasioned this need is the reality that we all know that we have not, in fact, loved our brothers and sisters as we ought. We haven't loved them to the extent that we ought, necessarily with the pure motives that we ought. And he knows that his audience could be just as unsettled by the demanding nature of verses 17 and 18 as many of us perhaps were. And so John says, listen, we have to take, when we take inventory of how we have self-sacrificially loved brothers and sisters in Christ, when, when, when we have our heart speak to us accusations and failure and not good enough, as we take inventory of those things, we have to remember something or we will have no confidence before God. We have to keep something in mind. If not, we'll have no confidence and a zero vibrancy in our relationship with the, with the Lord. Because So whether that's our heart bringing to mind legitimate sin and failure that can be confessed and repented of and forgiven, or whether our heart is bringing false accusation against us, whether our conscience is falsely condemning us, we have to do something about it. We have to remember something. And what he says is, we have to know that God is greater than our hearts. And He knows everything. God's self-sacrificial love, God's heart, you might say, far exceeds the love and service that we extend toward one another. And brothers and sisters, let me just say, that is really, really good news. Really, really good news. And He knows all things, specifically in this context, means He knows everything about our attempts to love and serve the family of God. Yes, He knows all the facts about how many atoms there are in the universe too, but particularly right here, He knows our efforts. He knows our hearts. He knows what we have tried to do. God is extremely aware of both our earnestness and he's aware of the causal effects of our actions that we might not have any idea of. He is not a mean-spirited God who is impossible to satisfy because he knows every single thing that's going to happen in the ripple effects in history and maybe now on the other side of the world what my action has, I've now become 
causally participatory in something on the other side of the world that results in an atrocity, and I'm on the hook for that. Every motive tinged with, every motive tinged with sin doesn't count. And, uh, certainly, if I'm on the hook for all of if I if I have to be able to duck all of those accusations to walk in the light, that's not livable. It's not livable. It's not livable for me. It's not livable for you. We can't do life like that before God. We need some reassurance. We need our hearts to be persuaded. One commentator says it like this. He says, our comfort is that God knows that the measure of love we do have is irrefutable evidence of the activity of the Holy Spirit in our lives. That we too have been born of God, that we have crossed over from death to life. And he wants us to know it too. And so John says that when our hearts condemn us, we need to remember that God is greater than our heart and his knowledge surpasses ours, not only in knowing us and our actions better than we could ever know ourselves, but knowing how to meet our needs in love in a wise way that is often very challenging when, when things come out in the wash of life for us to do and identify. We do our very best and then we wonder if what we did was actually helpful or not. Was giving that money helpful or not? Was that enabling or not? That person a brother or not? All the, all, was this a need or not? Was I being stingy or was I being responsible? You hear that heart condemnation? Not enough, not enough, not enough, not enough. He says, if that happens, you, we've got to sit back and say, God is greater than our hearts and he knows everything. And his heart is towards us is far greater towards, than our heart towards other people. And he knows everything. So we can have hearts persuaded, reassured that God's love abides in us because of the work of the Spirit in our earnest efforts to love one another, imperfect as they may be. Now, verse 21 initially seems to suggest that there are two sets of people here. Verse 21 says, Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence before God. Again, it suggests that there might be two different sets of people, you know, Folks whose hearts condemn them, and then people who, whose hearts do not condemn them. But what I'm suggesting is that it is more likely is that John is outlining someone who has actually put into effect the remedy, you might call it, that he just prescribed. So if, if an illustration is helpful here, it's the difference. It's not the difference between you know one person is injured and another person is not injured. It's here's someone who's injured, and then here's an injured person who went to physical therapy and rehab, and now they are back with confidence on the playing field or the track or the court or whatever the case may be. Because no one passes the I've loved my brothers and sisters as I've ought to test. I would suggest that him understanding it is saying, once, we, once the process works like we are commanded to do this, we fall short and our heart condemns us. But we remember something. God's heart is greater than ours. He is greater than us and he knows everything. Now, after going through that, now my heart does not condemn me any longer. And that results in me having confidence. Confidence. Instead of someone walking around, whether I'm just this huge disappointment, God is always frustrated with me. I'm never doing enough. I just can't ever get in his good graces. So if we don't understand how 19 and 20 operate, there is very, very little chance of us having any 
confidence before God. We will always feel His questioning presence. This potentially angry, disappointed Heavenly Father, despite our very best and holy efforts from the heart, earnest attempts to serve brothers and sisters in Christ. And John says, once we get to the place where our hearts do not condemn us because we understand that God is greater than us and He knows all things, then we will be able to actually stand with confidence before God. And so that is an indispensable part of the equation. And when we do that, when we do that, whatever we ask, we receive from Him. Because we keep His commandments and do what pleases Him. Now, in chapter 5, he is going to add the caveat so well known to John and his audience and the whole Christian tradition and everyone in this room that whenever that Christ, that God gives in terms of answering prayer, whenever we ask according to his will. Now, that is implicitly already here. That is implicitly suggested by the mention of keeping his commandments and doing what he pleases. Whatever we ask, we receive from him because we keep his commandments and do what pleases him. I'm suggesting that is just to say, according to the will of God, a point to which we'll return later. So it's implicitly baked in there. The idea is I am living in God's will, okay, and therefore I am praying in God's will, and I can have confidence to come before God in prayer and ask what I want with confidence that I'll receive it. So the because here does not highlight an obedience condition that follows prayer in order to lock it down, right? I pray, I execute in order to get the close. That's not how it works. That's not what he's saying. He's saying praying in a certain way. Praying in a, There's a certain way in which to pray, which is coincides with a certain way to live. They are one and the same thing that results... And being able to come to God with confidence that you'll receive what you ask. You're living a life that's obedient to His commands. It's pleasing to Him. Now remember how despite our best efforts to love our brothers and sisters in Christ, we often fall short, either due to lack of knowledge, improper perspective, uh, sin. There's a challenge here. We import the same problem into our prayer life. Don't we? We import the same problems. Our limited perspectives, our lack of knowledge, our mixed motives, our sinful desires. But here's the thing. We can have confidence to come before God in prayer for the exact same reason. He is greater than us and He knows everything. He is greater than us and He knows everything. And so we can come to Him knowing that we will receive the fruit of what we have asked for insofar as we are living and therefore asking according to the will of God. And that's going to be broadcast to everyone by our actions. Are we obedient? Are, are, we, bearing, are we bearing fruit? Or is praying in, will, in, in the will of the Lord uh, just a phrase that gets inserted into our prayers as kind of a mystical ingredient? That makes it potent or something. Suggesting that's not it. Suggesting that is not it. His commandment is very simple. As simple as it is profound here. And this is his commandment. That we believe. 
in the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and love one another just as he commanded us. And what many commentators understand to be a repackaging of the first and greatest commandments, love of God and, and love of neighbor. It's kind of a repackage and then delivered to John's audience with particular focus on Christ. John simplifies. He distills the message. Of course, there are other commands or other things to believe, but he distills the fundamental message of the Christian faith and the gospel. Now, it might seem odd to you that we are commanded to believe because belief is not something you generally have a volitional control over. Okay, just like you cannot choose to believe that I'm not holding up five fingers. Someone tried it. They're like, I'm going to convince myself. You can't do it. Generally, we are either persuaded of something or we're not. We're caused to believe or we're not. So what does it mean that we should be commanded to believe? It's a fine question. But remember, in, in John, he, this is another one of his thick concepts. Belief here, no less than in, for example, John 3.16, belief is not this just cognitive assent. Come to adopt this truth. You know, Believe this proposition. That's not it. It is something that can be practiced. It is something that we can do to, to use John's language. So it certainly involves truth and is grounded in what is true about the world, but that truth is a thick truth, including the person of Jesus and how to live rightly before it. You want to live rightly before God? You have to believe upon Jesus Christ. In fact, it's very much like Romans 10, 9, where you confess with your mouth and believe in your heart, right? It's not believe in my head. Believe with my heart is that heart belief that John is talking about here, not simply adopting a particular attitude towards true propositions, which most many philosophers think is what a belief is. He says that is inseparable from loving the family of God. Can't love the family of God without that. And really even our neighbors more generally that follows and flows from it. And he says, whoever keeps his commandments abides in God and God in him. And so John rearticulates the truth that we heard from John chapter 15. Doesn't he? Isn't this a summarized version of just that? Abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. So the abiding language is not just abide in God, it's abide in God and abide in God. It is that, but it's also this amazing truth. God will abide in you. There's a promise that God will abide in you. So you have kind of this, this three-way inseparable relationship between us abiding in God, God abiding in us, keeping the commandments. If you have one of them, you have the rest of them. They can't be pulled apart from one another. Someone who's abiding in God has God abiding in them, and they're keeping the commandments. Someone who is truly, faithfully obedient, keeping the commands of God, living a life pleasing Him, is abiding in God, and God's abiding in Him. They all come together as a package deal, and therefore, He is in us. And so, verse 24, the second half of verse 24 by this we know, yet again, by this we know that He abides in us. By the Spirit whom He has given us. 
Now, there are some people who want to understand this as John's version of like Romans 8.16. You know, the Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we're children of God. Kind of like an inner witness of the Holy Spirit angle on things. Uh, at this point in the series, it might not surprise you to learn that is not exactly what's going on here because John's not using... Uh, John's emphasis is just not the same. It's not unrelated, but typically when John's talking about the Holy Spirit testifying to us and by, we, by which we can know things, he is talking not just generally that we are general Christian assurance, is that we can know that Jesus is the Messiah who's come in the flesh. For example, look back with me in chapter 2. Chapter 2 and verse 20. He tells his audience, unlike those who have gone out, but you have been anointed by the Holy One, and you have all knowledge. I write to you not because you do not know the truth, but because you do know it, and because there's no lie in the truth. Who else is who is the liar but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ? And so the way John uses it, there is assurance that comes from it, but it's not general Christian assurance. It is the Spirit who is providing me knowledge that Jesus is the Messiah. Jesus is the Messiah who saves and with whom uh, I am abiding, and in fact, the one who abides in me. Similar, but critically different. It's not kind of an, it's not just a, a, a general feeling, a general affirmation. It is the Spirit testifying to something specifically about Jesus who is abiding in me, in me and Him, that He is the Son of God come in the flesh. And so then we come full circle. Our confidence before God lies in His unsurpassed love and knowledge leading to true belief and action. That's where our confidence is found. It's a both and. It can't stop with our confidence before God lies in his unsurpassed love and knowledge. There are a lot of people who want to stop it right there. But the way John teases it out is it's our, our confidence is unsurpassed love and knowledge that leads to, in us, true belief in action, pursuing the truth. I want to just discuss one particular point in application in this passage. And I don't think we can afford to misunderstand this one. Okay? I don't think we can afford to misunderstand this. Verse 22 is really an application of the confidence piece, right? Really flows out of 19 through 21. We have confidence before God. And then what's the ultimate upshot here that John gives in this particular passage? Whatever we ask, we receive from him. Because we keep His commands and do what pleases Him. And my guess is, when I went through that part, and I said, whatever, whatever we ask, whatever we ask, if you're honest, you're thinking, whatever I ask? Really? That's what it says, though. This, of course, is not isolated. We heard it in the second Scripture reading. Whatever we ask according to the will of God, ask and you shall receive. I mean, this is all across the Gospels. We see it right here. Whatever you ask according to the will of God. And I said that that's teased out implicitly in the second part there. Of course, it was already known explicitly. 
Does this mean that if I am living well, walking in the light, that I can have an expectation and confidence that God will answer all of my prayers? The answer is, it depends what you mean by answer. God will answer your prayers because he's not taking vacation time. But what does it mean that he might not answer prayer in the way that we think, but in a way that's compatible with still affirming that we'll receive whatever we want? You might think that saying, yeah, if you're living faithfully, you can ask for whatever you want and it will happen. You might think that's problematic for a couple of reasons. One of them is, imagine the utter, the, the sheer terror of after you have prayed something, it's going to happen. All of its effects are going to happen. Do you know what they'll be years down the road? Have you ever prayed for something that in retrospect you're really glad didn't happen? I have. You probably have too. Imagine the horror of every time you go to God in prayer that amen seals the deal on a definite future that you have just caused to be. That would be terrifying, for me at least. The second thing, I've had the more obvious reason you might think it's wrong-headed, is because there are plenty, we, we all know, we've all prayed for things that have not happened. And we see the Apostle Paul, for example, pray that the thorn in the flesh would be removed multiple times. And the answer is no. Now there's a reason given, but the answer is still it's not going to happen. So that's why I say there's an answer, but the answer is no. Well, hold on then. What does it mean when we pray for whatever, whatever ask we're going to receive? What does it mean to pray in accordance with the will of God and expectation that we receive the confidence? There are at least three misunderstandings of this, and I want to outline them briefly for you. Okay? The first misunderstanding is that praying, praying according to the will of God in a way that leads to confidence and expectation of answer prayer it understands the will of God to kind of be like a fence, okay? Like a boundary or a fence that is set by Scripture. Scripture sets the, what, what is true about the world and what is right, what we should be doing. And, and, and so on this understanding, praying according or in God's will almost takes like a spatial metaphor. And it's like, okay, so long as you're praying somewhere in the fence, that's God's will. You might, you might uh, say alternatively, to pray something that is theologically and morally permissible. It's within, it's in bounds. Okay? The problem is the one, the problem with this one is the main one that I just mentioned. That there are countless prayers that could be told, that the things that we have prayed for specifically, and Paul is another great example, countless times that we pray for permissible good things that don't happen. They just don't. Sometimes people die. Sometimes you don't get that job. Sometimes, whatever the case may be, you fill in a blank from your own life. You're asking for something that is permissible. It's within this framework. It's inside the fence. Doesn't happen. That doesn't seem like a good candidate then. Well, this, what's the second misunderstanding? I'd say it's praying, it would be to say that praying with, in accordance with God's will means praying in accordance in a way that aligns with what is going to happen 
according to God's sovereign plan and from his omniscient perspective, because he's sovereign. Yeah, it sounds good initially, but the problem is, I don't know his sovereign plan. I have no idea what it is. I, I'm not privy to the mind of the Lord. I've not been his counselor. Have you? So what good is that going to do? I can't even, that would be an impossible way. That, to pray according to the will of God, if that's what it means, it means something that's inaccessible. It means something that's impossible. And even if we whittled it down, it would be something like, God, I pray that what's going to happen is going to happen. Amen. But, but, but that's not coming before God in some kind of confidence in prayer. That's coming to God with some kind of uh, fatalistic resignation that what I'm about to say doesn't even matter. That doesn't seem to be what John is urging us here. Can't really do anything in prayer. Where is no confidence at all? And so, Lord, I come this morning knowing that what's going to happen is what's going to happen and therefore make it happen. Amen. It's not what we see. Those aren't the prayers that we see in Scripture either from people in Scripture. Certainly not in the Psalms. Certainly not in, among the New Testament authors that give examples of their prayers. So that can't be it. Well, what about, what about this third? You know, to pray in accordance with God's will. Scripture is the revealed will of God. That is certainly right. So to pray in accordance with God's will, it means to pray the promises of Scripture. It means praying Scripture back to God. And while this is a fine practice, this is great. I hope you include Scripture and the promises of Scripture in your prayer life. But limiting it to, to, to reciting theological truths back to God just cannot justify the breadth of the whatever dimension to the command that we see over and over and over in promise. Whatever we ask, we shall receive. You know, whatever, you know, that's got to be like whatever we pray that's already been written about theological truths will happen because of biblical inerrancy. That's really what that version is. Something like that. And again, it doesn't, it doesn't comport with the examples that we see in Scripture, which are prayer for specific things, praying for recovery for certain people, praying for very specific circumstances. Lord, please be merciful to X, Y, and Z in circumstance A, B, or C. So it's not just praying back theological truths to God. So what does it mean then if we... That if we are obeying God and living in a manner that pleases Him, that we can ask whatever we want and we can expect to receive it. And, and here is, I think, the best way to think about this. It's the idea that, our, that, that according to the will of God is a technical term. Okay, It's, it's, a, it's a thick phrase. It doesn't mean simply that our prayer lines up with something up in God's plan necessarily. It means that in prayer, our trust and our disposition towards God and our love for His plan with a desire for Him to receive the kind of honor and glory that is due Him that He alone deserves, that is the final governor of our prayers. That is the final governor. That's what it means to pray according to the will of God. It means that we pray for specific things and there's always a trump that we desire along with our prayer. We see, of course, the example of Jesus. Let this cup pass. Nevertheless, not my will, but your will. So praying in God's will, therefore, will always have two tiers. 
One will be praying for a certain result or a certain effect, a particular effect or result in life, right? Step two, though, we're praying for one because of something. This is where the praying in according with God's will, not in a way that matches something, we're praying in a particular manner. We're praying in a particular manner. We're praying that God would fill in the blank in the particular because we believe that it will advance or is at least congruent with the result we are ultimately after. The kingdom coming. The glory of God being displayed. And it's not just this, 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 but you're going to do this anyways. It's praying that this particular element would play a concrete causal role in advancing this larger plan because I want this larger plan. That's what I want to see happen. That's the idea. That means that my requests for the particulars come under the umbrella of my desire for God's will and kingdom to come and be done. That's the idea. So let me give you an illustration here. Let me give you, I'm going to actually give you two. But the first one is going to kind of be to give a theological perspective on this. So my daughter Callie knows that I love when she uh, draws. I love what she, she, she likes to draw and color and all the rest of it. And I really like to facilitate that. I want to foster that as much as I can, and she knows that. She knows that about me. And so knowing that, on one occasion, she asked me if she could use a specific pen. She asked me if I could hand it to her, actually. Well, here's the thing. That's all she said. That was her request. But I knew that she was going to use it to draw on the dry erase board. Okay? I knew that's what she was after. And so instead of giving her the Sharpie she was pointing to, I gave her the black dry erase marker so she could doodle and erase. And you know what she said? Thank you, Daddy. Now, zoom out. Did I give her what she asked for? Depends what you mean, right? There could be a technical case for no, but you could have a robust case for yes. She got exactly what she was wanting. That is the sense in which whatever we ask according to the will of God, we will receive. You ask in that way, you will receive. And I should say, maybe, maybe for this one, God will give you what you ask in that kind of a manner. Maybe that's a better way to say it. God will give us whatever we ask in the same way that I gave my daughter what she asked. And she was so thankful that I gave her what she asked for. You see how that works? To summarize then, to pray in accordance with God's will and to live in accordance with God's will are the same thing. Praying in accordance with God's will is not a line that you drop into your prayer requests. It's just a way of praying on the heels of a life lived according to the will of God, obedience to His commands and pleasing to Him. My life and my request to God in prayer both involve little p purposes and big p purposes as God weaves redemptive history together. And the foundation of both my actions in life in general and my prayer requests in particular 
are both motivated, or they should be ultimately motivated by my desire to see the kingdom come and the glory of God. And my prayer is that in this particular way, God would do it. So I gave you the example of Callie and the dry erase board as kind of a theological paradigm, thinking of that, how God, from kind of the God perspective, giving what's asked, even though it wasn't, you know, you understand the tension there. I want to close with saying, how does this, what does this look like for us in prayer? So we're going to switch roles. I'm going to put, a, put myself in another position here. I'll tell you about um, a relationship I had with a senior account manager when I worked at Dell. Many of you know I worked at Dell. Before coming on staff here, I entered as an inside sales rep, and inside sales reps were assigned senior account managers, and essentially what that was was someone who, high, who handled the high-end deals, tens of thousands to hundreds of thousands of dollars, you know, you kind of kicked it over to them because they were the more senior people and they knew how to do a lot more stuff. And, all that. and um, we were, it was kind of a phone, um, call, a call center kind of environment. You're taking calls off of Marcom. And then if you got a call that seemed to justify a senior account manager, you would either say that you know, schedule a call back or get them, on the, get them on the phone. But I like to, I like to close. ABCs, anyone who's been in sales, always be closing, baby. Coffee's for closers, lunches for the weekend. I live that life, okay? So my senior account manager, his name was Derek. And he was a he was very, very good at closing. He was as as salesman-y as it gets, in a good way, kind of. <laughs> he had a charming accent. I mean, he just he was able to get it done. And he loved closing deals. He loved taking what I'd brought over to him and making it happen. Okay? Derek, I called him money bags. I, I think he liked it. Um, but what would happen is this, and I'm sure that it takes no imagination for anyone to discern that this is exactly what it looked like in real life. I would get a call that said something like, I'd like to buy a thousand laptops. I'd say, give me one second. I'd, put, I'd hit mute and say, I knew I'm such a good salesperson. What a way to grow a deal. All right. Got a thousand. And I would walk back to Derek on the other side of the, the huge sales floor. I'd go, money bags. Hey, batter up, baby. We got fresh fish on the line. <laughs> Time to make that money. All right. That's exactly what I said. And he'd smile. Said, we got them right now. Let's go. And then he would jump on the phone and he would actually discern whether or not it was... <laughs> It was good, whether it was a good deal or whether it was actually not so good in terms of advancing our attach rates and quotas and services, goals, and all the rest of it. But that's what I would do. I would go back there to a, a guy who I knew was great at closing and who loved sales and who wanted to take what I gave him and close the deal. And I'd say, hey, got one for you. Got one for you. Now, I'm suggesting that something like that is the other perspective, is how we come before God when we're praying according to God's will. So what does that look like? looks like when I pray, God, I know you are a God who loves to show your mercy, who loves to provide, who loves to make a great name for himself. And God, hey, my I've got one for you. I've got one for you. My neighbor needs a job. This person has cancer. This 
whatever it is. And so, how about this? We've got fresh fish on the line here, God. How about you show your glory by doing this? Here it is. That's how you pray according to God's will. You see that? How the desire for something larger is the very reason I want this particular thing to happen. So much so that implicitly, if that would not actually advance my ultimate desire, I have a prayer request that is unspoken on the back end. Don't let it happen. If I found out that this would actually be counter to what I ultimately wanted, there's a tucked-in prayer request behind that. And if it isn't what I think it is, and it won't advance things the way that, that you want, then please don't answer it. That's praying according to the will of God. So that's my challenge to you. Is that how you come to the Lord in prayer? I want to see the kingdom come. I want to see light shine. I want to see you make your name great in my life. I want to see you make your name great in this life. And so, I've got one for you. And after that, I've got another one. And I've got another one. Be the closer. And then, we trust. Knowing that we will receive whatever we ask. Let's pray. God, we are humbled by the fact that you hear prayer and answer prayer. And we know that when we come to you, we will receive what we ask. So, our Lord, I pray that this would change the way people pray in our church because of the confidence that they have before you when they have hearts that condemn them. They can know that you are greater than our hearts, that you know everything, that confidence can be restored. That will situate us in the proper manner to plead for specific things in light of ultimate things. Thank you for being a good God who delights in blessing your children. Help us live and pray toward that end in Jesus' name.